Today in the podcast, we're having a conversation about data. But wait, before your eyes glaze over because you're not a numbers person, I need to tell you that I relate. When it comes to data and numbers, I've always thought it was an absolute snooze fest. But my guest today is Dr. Selena Fisk, and for the first time in a long time, I can honestly say she made talking numbers fun and engaging, and it changed my view on data. So stick around and hear how data can give us insights to transform how we lead and work every single day. Joining me on the podcast today is Selena. Selena is a data storyteller who's passionate about helping others sort through the numbers and tell the real stories that lead to positive change. Data is an increasing presence in our work and home life, and yet Selena recognizes that it doesn't always come naturally. So she seeks to build skill in others and make the use of data less daunting. She mentors executives, middle managers, team leaders, and employees in data storytelling with the goal of benefiting the organizations and communities in which we work. She's the author of I'm Not a Numbers Person, How to Make Good Decisions in a Data-Rich World, and also a really great human being. Selena, welcome to the podcast. Oh, thanks, Shane. Thanks for having me. I'm really looking forward to this conversation. I, I had to hit record because as we were kind of getting ready, you said something and I'm like, oh, I want to ask this question, this question. I immediately was like in, in interview mode. So I had to hit record before we start. Before we do, let's help people get to know three things about you. Where were you born? What was your first job? And then what do you do now? I was born at Nambour Hospital on the Sunshine Coast in Queensland. My first job was working at Big W, actually, as a, in retail, um, checkout chick for a little bit. Then I did a bit of night fill and packing shelves. And what I do now is I am a data storyteller and grounded researcher, which means that I work with organizations to help them make sense of um, and use the data that they have access to. See, I knew there was a reason I like you. You're a Queenslander. And so that's, uh, I knew when we first met, there was just something about you that just really connected. And obviously it was that Queensland blood flowing through us. Um, So that's really, really nice to know. When you say what you do now, how often do people just go, that sounds like the most exciting and thrilling job in the world? (laughs) Oh, they think I'm weird is probably the the more frequent response that I get. Occasionally, there's a few data nerds out there that get really excited by it. I'd like to think that once I at least start explaining and start talking about people kind of go, oh yeah, she really is into this thing. (laughs) Like if you're seated next to someone on a flight and they go, oh, what do you do? And you go, um, I look, I, I talk about data and numbers. Do you just watch their eyes immediately go like, do you reckon there's any chance I could swap seats? Or <laughs> Well, for starters, I'm a hardcore introvert and plain conversations are not my thing. So <laughs> but I I'd probably be saying something far more scary to, um, yeah, to scare them off, I think. But I'm actually that person on the plane that... Um, Oh, I was sitting beside a bloke not that long ago, actually, and he was prepping a PowerPoint presentation. He was obviously flying somewhere to do this big presentation. No word of a lie. I reckon there were like 200 slides in this presentation, and each slide had about three different graphs on it. And I was like, oh, mate. And I didn't say anything, but I did want to just go, oh, can we talk about information overload and picking the actual good bits of the data out and just conveying that, like you're going to lose people second slide in, mate. But anyway, so I'm also that person. You just know what it's like to be sitting in that presentation, don't you? There, You can just imagine what it's like being on the other side of that. Yeah. And I feel for him because there's obviously, he's probably got some really important things that he wants to say and it's just going to get lost in how he's actually presenting the message. So 
I obviously didn't say anything because I'm also not that person, but um, yeah, I felt for him. <laughs> I felt for people listening to that presentation. I, I've got to, let, let's talk about that for a moment because I, I'm that person that when we talk numbers and data and information, I'm like, if, if you do a kind of picture, like, look, it's not true, the left brain, right brain, we know we kind of can do both, right? So that's, that's an old myth, but there is definitely preferences. When it comes to preferences, I'm much more the abstract ideation, connect random kind of dots together, as opposed to the, the concrete, you know, practical, pragmatic. And I think that's okay, but I definitely know the value and the credibility that comes with having the data to support you think. The data has this stigma attached to it. It, it, need, it, has, a, it has a PR problem. What's the PR problem with data right now? <laughs> Look, that's, to be honest, that's why I, I named my book, my, um, the one, I'm not a numbers person. I named it that because that's what people say to me all the time, right? There's a, there's a number of different reasons why people feel like that. Um, there's the whole maths anxiety and perception of whether or not you're good at maths or bad at maths going through school. And, and we know that that sense of identity really shifts and forms, particularly from upper primary into lower secondary. So we've got people you know, potentially at 11 and 12 years old, really switching off and going, this is just not my thing. And that's really problematic because what we now know is that in our organizations, data is no longer just the analyst's role um, or job. Other people have got to actually be able to understand at least at a basic um, kind of level. I think the other part that really plays into it as well is even if I'm a little bit curious and even if I'm giving it a bit of a go, if I'm then in an organization or in a team with a leader who then uses it really badly, like uses it for accountability, uses it for tracking, uses it for, you know, this is what I see. And then you have to do something about it. Of course, if any, if somebody was on the fence, yeah, that they're, they're just kind of going back into that little hole of no numbers are just not my thing. So, um, that kind of culture of comparison and competitiveness in a really negative way, absolutely is impacting the way that some people really negatively perceive data. I found one of the, the kind of trends that I saw when I was especially doing a lot of work with my lead the room content around public speaking is that there is a, a tendency for a person to default to what comes natural to them. So when someone gets nervous and they have to stand up on stage and speak, if they're the funny person in the room, typically they default to their humor because their humor feels really comfortable. Or if they're a natural storyteller, then they'll default to telling stories. But if you're a numbers person, you default to the numbers and you default to the data. And so you have this kind of presentation of extremes, which is either it's just full of stories and everyone goes, it just felt really fluffy or it's full of numbers and it feels really, really dry. And what I like about you is you kind of are almost a bridge between those two worlds where it's like, I don't just give people the credibility that comes from the numbers, but I teach them how to actually translate that into something which makes sense through the story, the stories that those numbers tell. And what kind of got you into that space? Like, how did you become that bridge for people? Yeah, it's interesting because, you know, hindsight, right? You look back at things and you kind of go, oh, I think there were all these things along the way that certainly contributed. But yeah, it's an inter it's certainly an interesting career path and interesting kind of steps. I actually trained as a secondary school teacher. And so I spent 16 years in the classroom teaching high school and I am still trained maths and physical education teacher. So I... Even by default from choosing those two subjects at uni back when I was 18, I think I, I almost was going down that path of doing both. It was the numbers piece and it was the people piece. Um, and, and the reason, to be honest, I mean, I was okay at maths at school. I did okay. I enjoyed it. I found it pretty easy. I didn't get great results because I didn't work very hard. Um, 
And, but the only reason I was thinking about this the other day, the only reason I actually chose maths as um, a, a second teaching area was because I was going to choose physical education and health education. And some, somebody said to me, they said, you're never going to get a job if that's all you train as, is those two subject areas. You need to, uh, you know, you need to train in an area that's going to actually get you work. I was like, well, I don't hate maths, so <laughs> let's give that a go. And then over time, I guess I've taught both of those things. You know, I used to be a head of phys ed when I taught in the UK, which feels like a lifetime ago. But then in, when I was in the UK, there was just a really negatively data-driven culture of student results. And we were held as leaders, we were held virtually personally responsible for the pass rates of students at the end of the year. And so you think about that out of a school context in any other workplace, basically one 12 month KPI and you either get it or you don't. And if you don't, you performance manage for 12 months. And if you get it, you kind of get a little bit of a pat on the back, but not much recognition. It's like, oh, well, you just did what you were meant to have done. And so it's um, interesting then when I came back to Australia and there was this real disconnect between the way data was being used. And then I actually went down the path of doing my doctorate and I wrote a couple of books and um, yeah, that, so I think just my whole life experience really has been kind of almost funneling me into this kind of merger of the human and the story, but also the numbers and, um, you know, almost the objective quantifiable evidence that we can use to connect two humans and two people. It makes a lot of sense. Like when you start to see, you often don't look at the moments when you're in them and go, I'm really intentionally planning to become this kind of a person, but you often look back with a gift of hindsight and you go, oh gosh, all of these pieces were coming together for me. So similar story for me. Like I, I was very more of the creative at school. Then I went and did um, marketing. And so it was very kind of fun and creative. Then I went and did, you know, counseling and post-grad and I'm looking at now as a coach, I'm like, I'm kind of balancing this positioning and messaging slash this people and, and psychology and then this business kind of woven through all of it. Never intended to do any of that. It just kind of pieced together to be, kind of make me who I am today. And so we, we think, let, let's kind of start with the, I'm not a numbers person, because that was obviously the title of the book. Um, when people say like, I, I'm just not a numbers person, what do they really like? What do they mean by that when they say that? Yeah, I, I think they're saying that they're not confident because it's easier to almost default to being in that box than it is to say, you know, with some vulnerability, actually, I just don't get this, or I, I don't know how to read or interpret that, or I've got these questions and I don't know the answers to them. I need help. Yeah. I, I think that's kind of the main thing. It's more confidence. I reckon everybody can become a numbers person. I mean, even people that I've met with dyscalculia, which is, you know, like dyslexia, but with numbers and people get numbers mixed around, people with dyscalculia can still be numbers people. I mean, maths anxiety is a real thing. Um, that that does impact some people and it's largely been impacted by what's happening for them or what's happened for them at school and what's happened in families and that type of thing. But, you know, I mean, that's that's about, the research says it's somewhere between about 2 and 10% of the population has actual maths anxiety. I reckon we can at least get people to a point where they're not fearful and able to ask some good questions. They don't have to be analysts and they don't have to be able to create all the pretty graphs, but we just want people asking good questions and being curious about and engaging in the process. There's a natural tendency within me to just go, yeah, but, but why? Why does it even matter? I often look at some things and I go, if that feels too complex, feels too complicated, I'm like, ah, I'm just not even going to bother and try with that. And this is one of those areas that I don't think it's, it's okay to just say, ah, oh, look, I don't get it. So I'm just not going to bother with it. I don't think that really is going to cut it in a leadership role or in a team role. If you just say to your manager, you know what, hey, now nah, I'm not really a numbers person, so I'm not even going to bother with the data. 
I just don't think that, that doesn't really cut it today's workforce, does it? No, not at all. And as I said, you know, historically you could be that person because you could just go to the analyst, you could go to your IT team, you, you could go to those people that are working with your tech and you would ask for a report and they would produce it and they would answer, they would attempt to kind of answer the questions that you had. Um, but we're now increasingly seeing that it's more and more people's responsibility. It needs to be in more people's wheelhouses. And, and you think about even from the perspective of members of a board now, there's members, you know, in Australia, we know that members of the board are held, you know, are, are deemed to be negligent. If they're shown reports and data um, and say, for example, there's there's a risk that they then don't notice, they don't act on, and then something goes wrong, they can be personally held accountable for being negligent and ignoring some of that data. And there's an example that I use in my book about a trucking company that did that. Um, and the gentleman ended up in jail because he knew about the issues with the truck maintenance and the fact that they hadn't been um, maintained over a long period of time and that there were issues with them and basically chose to ignore it. And because the data had been presented to him, he was put in jail for a number of years as a result of that. So, um, yeah, certainly more and more people's responsibility now. It's really serious stuff. I guess some kind of things that you can, I'm trying to work the best way, you can kind of fake it till you make it. But when you're talking about something which is as concrete as data, uh, it's not something you can kind of just, like if I, if I get up and, and, you know, present an idea that is just an opinion, you can kind of, if you say it confident enough, people can kind of believe it. But if you present the data and you don't fully understand it, it's not something you kind of fake it till you make it, is it? No, it's really not. But it's also, it's it's pretty objective, right? And that's the benefit of having numbers and having quantitative information. And we know that even if there's a heated argument at work, for example, the way that you would, um, you process that and document that, like that's that qualitative information that we have access to. It's qualitative is really useful as well, but it's far more um, subjective and it's far more, it's influenced really significantly by the experiences, the background, the biases, all of that, of the person who's experienced it or, or seen it. And, and, you know, we see that with Google reviews, right? You can see places where people write all of these amazing five-star reviews. And then at the same time, you've got one and two-star reviews and it's the same place. It's the same employees. It's the same products, but different people perceive um, different things in different ways. So what quantitative data brings um, to us is a real, well, it's more objective than some of that really subjective stuff. So there's no no harm in not sharing the stories and not kind of sharing that really um, like the interpersonal or the human element of it. But how do you pick out a few pieces of key quantitative information to kind of reinforce the message and that's kind of going back to your point before about stories alone might perceive, might be too fluffy, numbers by themselves are too dry, but how do we actually kind of bring them together? Because that's where I reckon that's the money shot. Yeah, that's I think that's that's real magic. I, and I think I've seen, uh, we know when when people do it really well, like I've seen presenters or I've seen leaders when they go, they, they tell the story and it's compelling and it's engaging, but then it's backed up with the robustness of the data that that, that demonstrates that. And there's something about as a listener, as a receiver, you buy into something a whole lot quicker. You can't argue sometimes like with the numbers, like someone, sometimes remember when I did my research project for my book, there was a statistic and it was something along the lines of, um, you know, two thirds of people we surveyed in our, in our study said that culture had improved during COVID, which was a really contradictory response. And I had put that, that information out through my LinkedIn and someone said, well, that's not my experience and was trying to tear it apart. 
And I was like, okay, would love to know. Tell me a bit about that. And they're like, well, I, I've spoken to two or three of my clients and they said the opposite. And I was like, oh, okay, well, this is based on a thousand people and there's a really strong quantitative data. And I, I, it felt so good to be able to hold a position or at least have a position that was backed up by some credibility as opposed to, I talked to a few of my friends and they said this. Yeah, absolutely. Or you going out to the world and saying, I believe that two thirds of people say that culture has improved during COVID. And then when somebody comes back and pushes back at you, you kind of don't have anything to stand on really, do you? When there's no actual data other than, you know, maybe your small um, random sample of friends that you've asked that question to and, um, yeah, you know, there's, and there's so many biases that impact this work as a, like everything, but you know, confirmation bias is a massive thing, right? So if you like, so for example, that person, they might've just gone and asked a few people that they thought were going to disagree with them because they were like, no, I don't think that's true. And then they've gone and asked these people that they would probably say, or who would probably say that it was the op opposite experience. And then they're like, yeah, see Shane, <laughs> I've asked my three mates, all of whom have confirmed what I thought. And yeah, here we are. It's really helpful to bring confidence in your decision-making. So one of the other things I do is I do strengths-based work with people. And we often look at people who are really naturally talented in the areas of, yeah, I guess, more analytical strategic thinking. And whenever I ask them the question, what's important to you? They go, I just want to make sure that I'm, when I'm making a decision, I want all the evidence and the data to make sure that I'm making the best decision that I could make. And so it's not just a, an anecdotal, you know, in case someone challenges you that you've got a leg to stand on. It's also so as an individual, you can feel personally confident and back the decisions that you have to make and present to people, I would imagine. Yeah, absolutely. Like you think about if you were going out buying a new fridge and you're prepared to spend a couple of thousand dollars you wouldn't just walk in and look at the first one that you see and go, yeah, I like the look of that and, and spend money on it. You probably would go online and look at reviews and look at what people are saying about it. You'd go to multiple sources. And so you're then going in with an educated kind of idea about what you're going to buy. That's what I do with all my stuff. So I walk into salespeople and go, right, I want that right now. And they're like, oh, do you want to look at others? I'm like, no, it's okay. I've done, my, I've done the research. <laughs> I've got a pretty good understanding of what I want. That piece, I think, also leads nicely into the idea that I always talk about, which is we should be triangulating data at all times. So triangulation is the idea that we use three or more sources of information. And it started historically in navigation and um, military with compass and a map. And it was a way of ascertaining your position on a map if you got lost. And, and what it does is when we triangulate the information, we're getting kind of multiple sources of information that are indicating kind of what's going on or what the current situation is like, or, you know, in the, in the case of the fridges, what are multiple, multiple reviews saying or multiple websites saying. And then when we have three or more, they're not necessarily all going to agree, but what we do is we trust the majority of the data. So if you look at some reviews that are amazing and you've got two reviews on two different websites that are just, they've got really high scores. And then you've got, you know, one cranky person over here who really dislikes it because they bought a fridge that was too big for the spot in their um, kitchen. You can actually discount that piece of data. And I'm kind of being flippant about it, but it's the same with organizational data. The, the example in the UK for me that essentially hanging my success on one KPI or one metric is really problematic. Because there are so many things that contribute to that one thing that's happening. But actually, we need to be thinking about what are the other kind of key sources of information that, I guess, give me a piece of the puzzle and give me some sort of feedback about how that's going. Then on balance, what does the majority of the data tell us? And then that's when we can even more confidently go, I know this to be true. 
or there's a clear pattern or a trend here, or this is happening for our organization. It's super helpful because I, I am the typical person that goes straight to a Google review and filters by the one stars. And I don't do it because I want to like try and catch the business out doing something wrong. I want to try and filter out the ones that I know are really angry results. And you see them all the time. You go, that person had a really bad service experience and came and wrote this review. It's got nothing to do. But then if there's like a common thread in the one star reviews of like every single person is saying our room was dirty, our room was dirty. I'm like, okay, well, like it's too hard to discount that. So I, I, would, I would suggest that even some people are probably making some kind of data informed decisions on a regular basis, but maybe not even fully aware of the fact that they're doing it. Would that be the case? Yeah, absolutely. And data is such a broad term, right? It's, um, it, yes, it's quantitative and the default is the quantitative metrics that we've got, like a Google review, like a score out of five, for example. There is just so much other qualitative information and evidence. And I think evidence fits into that category of data. And, and I actually use the word, I actually, actually use data and evidence and information pretty in interchangeably. And there are some purists who really hate that and argue with me um, about it because, you know, in its purest form, data is the raw data. It's the millions of data points that sit behind the kind of summary statistics. But you're right. Like where, when we observe something happening and we observe it and we think about it and we reflect on it, that's data. Like that's evidence of something that's happening. If we see a pattern of something that's happening with a, a you know, one of our kids or a young person, it's like, or a colleague. Yeah, we, we start to actually build this kind of pattern of data in our head. So oftentimes, I guess the way I perceive it is that people are generally pretty good at the qualitative and the anecdotal data and being responsive to that. But it's like, how do we bolster the use of some of the quantitative and the numerical? Because where, you know, that there's this um, slide that I often use when I'm presenting and it's like, well, what is data storytelling and what does it look like? There's actually nothing groundbreaking on that slide, but it's a slide that most people take a photo of. And it's because I think there's a, there's a lot of things that we actually do. We tweak what we're doing. We make changes. We, you know, we sell shares, we buy Bitcoin, we sell Bitcoin. Like there's so many things that we're doing based on data, but just because it's not being spat out in an Excel spreadsheet doesn't mean that it's um, not data. It's just a different type of it. So if we were to talk about the fundamentals of what are the skills that we need to be developing to get better at, you know, how we utilize data? If you would sit there and say, well, I'm not talking like, you know what a percentage is. I'm not, we're not talking like that kind of technical skills, but like what are the fundamental shifts we need to make about how we use data in everyday? Yeah. So I always talk about three main pieces. So data literacy first, data visualization, and then data storytelling. And I think we need to be we need to have a kind of good handle on all three of those things. Data literacy is that idea of every metric has a different meaning and a context that sits around it. And one of my favorite books, um, it was a book called Proofiness, How You're Being Fooled by the Numbers, written by a gentleman called Charles Seif. And there's a, there's a line in that book that I really love. And he says, nobody cares about the number five because it's not until you put a context around the number that it means something. So if I own five dogs or if I win $5 million or if I drink five glasses of wine, they all mean something really different, but you understand the context of those. And so when we're talking about using the different metrics in life or in our workplace, we actually need to make sure that we understand them to begin with because we can't use them if we actually just kind of don't get them. And a key, a key role that the organization has got in that piece is actually 
funneling down from, you know, we've got millions of data points and we've got potentially tens of thousands of different types of data sets, depending on where you work. But we can't possibly act on or use all of that at once. So an organization's got a really key part to play in, well, what actually does matter to me? And even from a personal perspective, you know, if I'm booking hotels, what does matter to me? Well, maybe for you, Shane, it's the, the one-star reviews. If there's a consistent trend there, for you, that matters. And so clarity around that and understanding of them is the first thing. The second thing is that we need to be able to read and understand the visualizations that we're given. And this is where our analysts in organizations do a really good job, potentially, of, um, of creating some of those visualizations for us. And at the same time, there's a lot of visualizations that are misused or the most appropriate visualization isn't used. And so the meaning and the trend and the insights actually really get lost in the noise of bad visualizations. So for starters, we need to be able to read and interpret the ones we've been given, but we also at least need a basic understanding of like that pie chart with those 150 little slithers of the pie, that's actually not useful because I can't, there's too much in it, it's too noisy, it's too busy. And so being able to ask for or seek out the other visualizations that kind of work. And then the final piece obviously is the gold, which is the data storytelling. And there's, in terms of the way we do that, Brent Dykes in the US, um, he wrote a book called Effective Data Storytelling, and he's done some really good work around, it's like a Venn diagram, there's kind of three equal pieces, and they're the narrative, obviously, they're using the data and using the visuals, and when we're able to do those three things equally, we're able to lead change and have an impact on other people. For me, I focus on the what do we do with it, because his book really kind of focuses on if you were to do a presentation to other people you know, how do you do that well? And so it's a brilliant resource. And at the same time, there's a lot of data storytelling that actually happens in our own heads. So you going to book a hotel, for example, you know, you're not getting up, so you don't need to think equally about the, you know, have I included the narrative? How have I thought about the data? What's the visual that I'm using? How do I convey it? You haven't had to do that. But for me, what we do when we engage in data storytelling is we answer two questions. So the first question is, what are the insights and the trends in the data? So what can I see? And then the second question is, what do I do about it? So but again, back to your hotel example, I can see a trend where the cleanliness of the room is really coming up too often. What's my action? I'm not going to book that hotel. Sorry, that was a bit of a long-winded explanation, but there's a, obviously a, a whole lot to it. Yeah. I mean, there's a whole book that you wrote on, the, on those on those areas. So I, I, I get it. But one of the things that stood out to me in that is this, if we think about the pie graph with, you know, 400 different splits around it, I think in my mind or potentially in other people's minds, you go, if I can give them something which looks really robust, then it's going to seem like it has more credibility. Like if I said, here's, you know, a hundred different data points and we've presented it to you and it's got a hundred different slivers across this pie graph. It looks like a lot of work's gone into it. But if I give you a pie graph and it has two segments, you'd go, well, that's too simple. Therefore, I don't look as credible, right? But my understanding is it's actually not about the complexity of it. It's about the usability of that. Yeah. And I think that the person developing it actually really needs to think about the simplicity. Like how do you make really complex data sets more like simple for somebody to actually be able to use and interpret it? Um the, the interesting thing about it, so say, for example, you've got a dashboard or, you know, I don't know whether you use zero for your invoicing. Like there are so many different visualizations and things that you can 
um, you can see in that. The thing about a dashboard, about a set of visualizations, like if I say to you, Shane, can I have a report on this particular thing? And you come and you spit out this whole report to me. As then the user myself, I want to be pulling out the insights and the trends that I see. So what you give me is all information. It's all useful. But actually, we want to be able as the user to identify what actually really matters. What do I want to latch onto? And those become the things that we action and that we do something about. So too often we are given visualizations or we're given data and it's like, oh yeah, that's interesting, but nothing happens from it. You know, people leave a meeting, they leave a presentation. It's like, oh yeah, that was interesting, but there's no so what. And there's some work around, um, there's a psychologist, Gary Klein, who's done a lot of work around like what is an insight. And he says that an insight is something that shifts a pattern in our brain. Like it tells us something new or something different. I reckon it's, well, clearly I love this stuff. I reckon it's pretty cool because, you know, what we also know to be true is that if you and I are given the same report, what I pull out as, a, as my top three insights won't necessarily be the same as your top three insights. And that's because of backgrounds and biases and culture and experience and all of those different things that, and those lenses that we bring to the conversation. The person producing the report is trying to, it's, it's tricky, but they're trying to develop something that can be used by multiple people with all these different lenses. So they've really got to do it in the most simple ways possible so that they can start to pull out those insights and, and start to think, okay, well, that's a key piece for me. And therefore, what am I going to do about it? I've always liked the, the idea when we talk about dashboards is if you think about it as a literal metaphor of your dashboard of your car, the whole purpose of a dashboard is to glance down at and get that understanding that you need in order for the journey that's ahead of you. And so when I'm driving my car, I don't spend my entire time looking at my speedo. Like I'm glancing down at it for a moment because I want to know, am I driving the appropriate speed for the kind of current zone that I'm in? Or I want to look at my fuel and I'm looking at my fuel. I want to glance. I'm Like if it said, you've got, you know, 42 liters left in your car, that would be so confusing for me. I, I don't know what's, what's my fuel tank's capacity. I couldn't even tell you my fuel tank's capacity, but I know I go, okay, we're around a quarter of a tank. And I go, based on my quarter of a tank, I've got about 150 kilometers to go, which and I go, my destination is 50 kilometers away. I've got plenty of fuel to get me where I'm going to go. So you're doing that kind of calculation in your head at the moment. And I think most people don't even realize that what you're doing in that moment is exactly what we're trying to create at a, at a more functional corporate level, right? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. It's, a, it's, um, that's a good description of it actually, because you think about, and I got a new car a couple of years ago, but my previous car used to actually tell me how many kilometers it was until I would run out of fuel. And I, I loved that. It was really, really good. And it, you know, there's like people who worry about filling up and how, how much fuel they've got and they have to go to the servo. I like push the boundaries and I got down to like four kilometers left. Cause I was like, yes, I can do this. I can trust the data that I'm getting. I'll <laughs> But on the flip side, my current car doesn't actually have that. So it's more um, subjective, I guess, because it's essentially, it's it's like a bar chart, right? It's, you've got the top bar being the full, like the height of the bar being the full tank and you can just see it. So on the weekend I was driving around, I was like, can I get to that place that I'm going with this tiny little bit at the bottom of my fuel tank? And I, and I literally was thinking, I wish I could see how many kilometers I had left because that would be more specific, I guess, than just this little piece of my fuel tank <laughs> visualizing. Good, good example though, right? How many times have you shown up to a meeting where someone comes in and goes, hey everyone, here's a bar graph. And you look at it and you go, okay, so does that, like, what does that tell us? Does that tell us that we've got enough fuel that's going to get us through? Like, all right, here's, a, everyone's a, here's our financials for the month. And you go, okay, we have this much cash in the bank, but like, 
what are our expenses and what does it actually mean? Like, so it's not just enough to give people data, right? We've got to actually, so this is kind of, again, understanding data literacy, then understanding kind of the visualization of that. But the storytelling is such a crucial component of all of this. Yeah, absolutely. Because as I say, like Brent does the work about presenting that to other people because you do need to be helping people connect those dots. I've seen plenty of times where people have gone to present data to others and they do that. They put up a visualization. It might only be one chart and you almost need to give people a minute to explain. And there's all these questions about, well, hang on, but what's that showing? And is that showing this? And and what's the comparison? And yeah, you're absolutely right. It aren't. We just need to be able to share with people the most important parts that we perceive to be useful for them. And there's a whole lot of work around how do you make charts simple, right? So it's, it's things like, I saw a chart recently and I reckon it had about 50 bars in it. And it's like, well, that's not easy to see because they were all also in categories. So there was about three or four bars that related to each category. So you kind of had to jump from category to category with all these different colored bars and then you couldn't really see the trends and, and that was really hard to kind of use. So yeah, that what we can do though, is we can simplify it. We can remove some of the white space. We can do things where we almost gray out the bars that are less relevant. So if something is um, less important, we can shade them a lighter gray and then we can make the one that we really want people to focus on say blue. And it just highlights and emphasizes that point. So it just makes it easier to read. And even things like text, I mean, in its purest form and, you know, again, when we learn at school how to graph, we never annotate graphs, but actually being able to put arrows to keep bits and, and putting little labels on it and explaining what's happening or putting a tiny little sentence, that actually really helps the user understand what's going on. And then they can start to piece together uh, the story and, yeah, work out what they might do about it. I think like when we when we start out on a journey in a car and we, we put the destination into our maps, we have a really clear path and route that we want to take. And no one no one is upset when you're very prescriptive about the journey that you want people to take on that. They're actually, it actually makes the journey more enjoyable for people. And there is an element of going, okay, well, we've got all this data here and we want to demonstrate that we've done the work and we've ex- looked, explored all the data. But we don't need to have all of that in order to be able to take people on a journey through it, we can actually map out certain points throughout that and go, hey, we're going to go here, but we're going here for a very specific reason. We're just going to stop here. We're not going to go into the detail here, but then we're going to move through that. And I think that that's actually very in service to other people, especially in the room, rather than giving them the information they don't need. Yeah, absolutely. But also, as you say, I think clarifying the way we want people to be engaging with the data is really powerful, particularly when we've got people that kind of say, well, I'm not a numbers person. I don't understand this. I say to leaders in all fields, treat adults in this space in the same way you would treat a kid if you were teaching them something for the first time. You know, you wouldn't get a 10-year-old, teach them to skateboard, show them for five minutes and go, yes, sweet, you're good to go now. Um, We would come back and we'd support them and we'd try and help them and we'd give them kind of multiple exposures to the information and we'd give them heaps of teaching cues and we'd show them how to skateboard, we'd model it, all of that. Whereas sometimes in the data space, there's almost like a just go and have a play is a common thing I hear people say with a dashboard. Just go and see what you can see. It's like, actually, that's not helpful because... The person sitting in that room who doesn't know much about data or isn't very confident, they're not getting anything out of that session potentially. But when we can be super prescriptive about go to this dashboard, think about these questions, look for these types of things and really structure and scaffold the process for them, 
if they don't need the scaffold, like that's gold. Let them, let them go be free of the scaffold. But right now, I reckon there's more people who need it and benefit from having really a really tight process around it that still allows for creativity and curiosity. But yeah, there's more people around that actually need that structure at the minute. I like the that you use the word a couple of times in this conversation, which is creativity, because I, I think there is this misconception that you have data people or you have creative people. And I, I genuinely believe, it's, it's my personal opinion, I think that data is is one of the areas that we can be extremely creative. And I think creativity creativity is connecting the dots between things. And I think you can connect the dots between abstract concepts or you can connect the dots between very concrete ideas. Both are, require a huge degree of creativity. Do you think data is a creative space? Yeah, absolutely. And and go, that kind of goes back to that, having multiple perspectives because we all see different things. I think the gold for me really happens in this space where I see teams of people sitting down and go and kind of having a conversation where they're saying, hey, Shane, I see these things and, and I've noticed this. And then Shane goes, oh, actually, that's interesting because I'd seen this. And then this is this is um kind of the connections that I've made over here. And I reckon there's creativity both in the thinking about what we see, but then also in the actions. Because we know that if you and I are, say, leaders of a similar type of team, but in different organizations doing very similar work, the insight that I have about my team and the insight that you have about your team might be very similar. But then the way that we choose to act on that insight could be totally different. And that's actually awesome. It needs to be because we're not robots. We're not machines. We're dealing with complex human beings in complex systems. The way you respond will be contextually relevant and appropriate to you and your team and your relationships with them and what you know about them in the same way as mine will be. So yeah, there's absolutely so much opportunity for creativity. Then there's a whole rabbit hole of all the brilliant people doing really super creative data visualizations. Like it's worth a Google if you're into this type of thing, but people creating really very different beautiful visualizations to convey meaning, but doing it in a really super creative and almost artistic way. I love that. There, there is there is so much out there that, uh, that if you want to go on this journey, you could start to kind of see things, look things up that would really spark that kind of uh, fire for you. Like, can we, can we get really practical for a moment? Because I think, I think we've made a really strong case in this conversation for, I guess, data storytelling and data visualization and data literacy. We've made that case. I think people will be sitting there going, yeah, I know I need to get better at this. And my default response is, well, pick up a copy of your book. I'm not a numbers person. That's a very good starting point. Second thing, find ways to work with you through programs. But like if you were to give some people some really accessible point of entry, like where do I even begin on this kind of data journey? To be honest, there's, there's probably two prongs. I think from a, a team or an organization level, even individually in our work, and it's what actually matters. You know, I, I do a lot of work with teams and, and leaders around coming up with a data plan because all these da- all these data points and sets over time have been added on top of each other. People often haven't had a chance to actually strategically zoom out and think, well, what what do we care about? What matters here? Because we want to be able to discount tons of the stuff that doesn't, um, doesn't matter to us. So I think that's a really key place, even as a team leader, to be able to kind of say how, what types of data do we use in our team and how do we use it? And what are some of those expectations? I, I think from a, from a personal level, you know, if you were to be looking, say, at a dashboard or at a report and you were wondering, I guess, what you do next with that information, I'd really encourage you from a practical perspective to think about that almost just think about the trends and the insights first 
So if I give you a report and I say, right, literally all I want you to do is just list the things that interest you and like pique your curiosity. So think about that Gary Klein quote about something that changes a pattern, something that surprises you, something that is unexpected and literally just brain dump an entire list of those things that are shifting your perspective as you read uh, or look at a, a report. With that, obviously, because you might come up with 30 things, right? And we know you can't act on those 30 things. But I then often get people using an Eisenhower matrix, so the urgent versus important. And I get people to then position all of the insights into the Eisenhower matrix to work out well, what actually is more important and more urgent than other things. And at this point, we're not talking about actions, right? We're just focusing on the trends and the insights. And then it's almost like prioritizing the insights into urgent and important. And I then take, if you've got an insight that you're saying, well, that for me is really important and urgent, I would at that point then start to think about, well, what are your possible actions? I do a thing where I get people to write down nine or like even use a three by three bingo grid or do a list of nine. What are your, all your possible actions that you might take now that you know that thing? And it's hard to come up with nine actions. I make people do it. I make them sit there and come up with nine. And, and oftentimes our brains can come up with three or four actions pretty quickly. What we also know is that the first thing we think about is not always the best um, way that we should respond. And I encourage people to do the nine because it taps into that Daniel Kahneman idea of the system one and system two thinking. He says that system one thinking is really fast and automatic and we don't actually, there's not much cognitive load involved. But in system two thinking, we're slower, we're more deliberate, we're discerning, we consider multiple perspectives and we kind of want to force people into that system two space. And so your system one brain is the is the one that goes, oh yeah, first action here, second, third, fourth. And then you, you it's almost like you feel, I feel like I almost hit a brick wall, like a physical brick wall and just come to a screeching, a screeching halt. And then you've got to wait for your system two slow, deliberate, discerning thinking to kick in where you can then fill in the rest. And then once you've got that, it's then a, a, then a reflective piece around what's actually going to have most impact with minimal output is probably the first, the first um, type of action that we would want to be taking. What, what I love about th this conversation in so much of the data storytelling and so much of the, the conversation we're having is, has been the whole purpose of all of this is so that you can use it and so that you can actually create action uh, as a result of the numbers and the data that we're getting from. And, and again, it's going to help you take better action uh, as an organization and as a team. What I really kind of draw out of this conversation, first and foremost, is to go, this is not something that is that has to be overwhelming and impossible. This is something you can start little and, and you can find ways to kind of develop this skill set. And the second thing I think I've drawn out of this is, is we often think that the more complex we can make it, the better it is. But I think the, the more usable we can make it, the better that it is. So if you were a person listening to the podcast and you're like, you know what, uh, I'll just feel my way through it, just go a bit of a gut feel or people who are sitting on that tipping point right on the edge going, yeah, I know this is important. If you just had 30 seconds to stand on a soapbox and speak to those people, what, what would you say to them right now about why is data so important? Oh, that's so hard. So much pressure. It's just the coolest thing ever. And I know that that's a really bad argument um, and that's not going to persuade anybody, but we know that our view, our view of the world is just our view of the world. It's just one perspective and it's powerful, but it is just one perspective. And data has a really cool way of showing us other realities and other things that are going on that we might not have anticipated or might not have um, expected. And it's also a really great opportunity to bring people together and to experience the beauty of 
having that conversation about, well, I see this and this is happening for me and this is something that I notice. And while I'm on my soapbox, the other thing I will add is that there's oftentimes there's an assumption that the use of data is going to end poorly or negatively or badly. The other really cool thing about data is that it shows us the growth and the progress and the areas of celebration that um, we have. And and it's just, it's hugely professionally rewarding to be able to see the impact that we've had or the change that our team's been able to um, create. And data has the ability to tell us that as well. So I'm going to pause there and get down off my soapbox. It's so good. It's so good. You know what I, I thought when you said that, kind of that, the opening part of that is that data has the ability to change our own mind. When we've got a really fixed perspective on something, it can be really hard to get out of that way of thinking. I remember when I did my research, I was sitting there going, okay, I've got these these thoughts or ideas, which I think are really strong ideas. And then the data told me something else. And I was like, oh, the data changed my own mind. And it, and when it changed my mind, I could show up and have a whole lot more, um, confidence in the, in the kind of, uh, the thoughts that I was putting out into the world. And so there's so much in it. And I feel like you're one of the very few people that could make a non-data person like me want to sit here and talk about data all day, which I think is I think is a huge win and people are listening to the podcast now. If you're still here, like if you, if you didn't drop out of those first 30 seconds where we talked about data and you're still here, I reckon you've done that for those people too. Um, so Anna, how, how do people connect with you? How do people find, obviously get the book. I'm not a numbers person. Uh, talk to me about a couple of the books you got out and ways people can connect with you. Yeah. So I'm not a numbers person is for a corporate audience. I have written a couple of other ones that are school specific. So if you're not in a school, don't buy them because they, they won't be all that um, useful. But I'm not a numbers person um, is available on my website. So my website is selenafisk.com. But yeah, I'm also on socials like LinkedIn and Twitter and TikTok and Insta and all of those types of things. So yeah. Amazing. Amazing. And and so if there's people who are looking for any way to kind of, I guess, bring some life to what is can be typically perceived as a very dry area, you, you do, you bring it to life, you make it energizing, exciting and fun. Uh, which I never thought I would ever personally say about data, but y- you do, you make it fun. Thank you so much for joining me on the podcast. It's been such a delight. No worries. Thanks so much, Shane. It's been fun. That's it for another week of phone calls with clever people. Thank you so much for taking the time to invest in you by checking out the podcast. Make sure you subscribe so you don't miss out on any of the episodes as they're released. And of course, I'd love to hear how this has added value for you in the reviews. Have a fantastic week.